Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 220, recorded February 10th, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy. I'm Brian Aachen. And we have a special guest, Hannah. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Hannah Stepnick, welcome to the show. It is so great to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great to have you. It's so cool. The internet is a global place. We can have people from all over. So we've decided to make it an all Portland show this time. We could do this in person, actually. Well, not really, because we can't go anywhere, but theoretically, geographically anyway. Yeah, so all three of us are from Portland, Oregon. Very nice. Uh, before we jump into the main topics, a few quick things. One, this episode is brought to you by Datadog. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash Datadog. And Hannah, do you just want to give people a quick background on yourself? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Hannah. Uh, I have written a book, which is weird to say, about pandas, but I also like just go around like give talks at various conferences um like on python so yeah uh like i gave re-architecting legacy code base recently that sounds interesting and challenging yeah <laughs> what was yeah. the legacy language was it python or something it was it was python um mm -hmm. it was like a flask uh web application and then also um the front end of it was Vue, like vue.js oh yeah uh -huh. so yeah that's been a fun project that was through work as developers like you're pretty much always working with some form of legacy code just depends on yeah. how legacy it really is um <laughs> well what could be cutting edge in one person's viewpoint might be too, super legacy in another right like it's yeah well, python 3.5 you wouldn't believe it right? <laughs> right yeah very cool well it's great to have you here um i think maybe we'll start off with our first topic which is sort of along the lines of the the data science world some tie-ins to your your book. And of course, uh, whenever you go to JetBrains, you've got to run your CLI to accept the cookies, which is fantastic. And so this topic, this first topic I want to cover is from JetBrains, and it's entitled, We Downloaded 10 Million Jupyter Notebooks. I almost said 10,000. 10 million Jupyter Notebooks from Git, uh, GitHub. Here's what we learned. So this is an article or analysis done by Elena Harina, And uh, yeah, pretty neat. So they went through and downloaded a whole bunch of these notebooks and just analyze them. Uh, there's many, many of them are publicly accessible. And a couple of years ago, there were 1.2 million Jupyter notebooks that were public. As of last October, it was eight times as many, 9.7 million notebooks available on GitHub. That's crazy, right? Wow. Yeah. So this is a bunch of really nice uh, pictures and interactive graphs and stuff. So I encourage people to go check out the webpage. So for example, one of the questions was, well, what language do you think is the most popular for data science just by judging on the main language of the notebook? Hannah, you want to take a guess? Oh yeah, Python, for sure, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Um, the second one, I'm pretty sure no one who's not seen this, there, there's no way they're going to guess. It's yeah. Nan. Nan. I, I'm <laughs> We, it's, we, we have is. we have no idea. Like I like we look, we can't tell what language this is in there. Um, but then the other contenders are R and Julia. And often people say, "Oh yeah, well Julia, maybe I should go to Julia from Python." Well, maybe, but that's not where the trends are. Like there's sixty thousand versus nine million. <laughs> you know, as the ratio. I don't know what that number is, but it's a percent of a percent type of thing. Wow. They, they also talk about the Python two versus three growth or, or difference. So in uh, 2008, it was about 50% was Python two. And in 2020, it's uh, Python two is down to 11%. And I was thinking about this 11%. Like, why do you guys think people, there's still 11% there um, hanging around? I mean, I would guess speaking of legacy applications, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> probably it <laughs> just hasn't been touched. But um, yeah. Also yeah, those are very likely the ones that were like the original 
2016-17 ones <laughs> that were not quite there. Uh, they're still public, right? GitHub doesn't get rid of them. Uh, yeah. The other one is I was thinking, you know, a lot of people do work on Mac um, or maybe even on some Linux machines that just came at the time with Python 2. So they're just like, well, I'm not going to change anything. It just, I just need to view this thing. I don't, I have Python problem solved, right? They didn't know that there's more, more than one Python. There's a good breakdown of the different versions. Another thing that's interesting is looking at the different languages, not languages, different libraries used during this. So like NumPy is by far the most likely used. And then a tie is Pandas and Matplotlib and then Scikit-learn and then OS actually for traversing stuff. And then there's a huge long tail. And they also talk about combinations like Pandas and NumPy are common and then Pandas and then like Seaborn, Scikit-learn, Pandas, NumPy, Matplotlib and so on as a combo. And so that's really interesting, like what sets of tools data scientists are using. Yeah. And then uh, another one is they looked at deep learning libraries and PyTorch seems to be crushing it in terms of growth, but not necessarily in terms of popularity. So it grew 1.3 times or 130%, whereas TensorFlow is more popular, but only grew 30% and so on. So there's a lot of these types of statistics in there. I think people will find interesting if they want to dive more into this ecosystem, you know, it's one thing to have survey and go fill out the survey, like ask people, what do you use? You know, what platform do you run on? Vue.js or Linux? And like, okay, well, that's not really a reasonable question, but I guess Vue.js, you know, like, but if you just go and look at what they're actually doing on places like GitHub, I think you can get a lot of insight. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, I know I use, um, like I'll go to GitHub pretty frequently, like at work when I'm, you know, just like browsing, like, I wonder how you do this thing or like what's the most common way to do this or yeah absolutely you know, there's just look up like what's the most popular it's always it's a pretty good uh sign if a lot of people are using it it is one thing i should probably make more better use of is i know they started adding dependencies like oh if you go to flask it'll show you flask is used in these other github repos and stuff like you could find interesting little connections i think oh this other project uses this cool library i know nothing about but if they're using it it's probably good yeah for sure yeah, I love the dependency feature of looking who's using it. It's neat. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Brian, you going to cover something on uh, testing this time? Yeah. I want if, to, I, actually, if we make you? <laughs> um, I wanted to bring up something we brought up before. So there's a, a project called PyTest Python Path, and it's just a little tiny plugin for PyTest. And we did cover it briefly in way back in episode 62. But at the time, I brought it up as, so, okay, so the, I brought it up as a way to uh, to to just shim like be able to have your test code see your source code, but as just like a shortcut, like a stopgap until you actually put together like proper packaging for your source code. But the more I talk to real life people, who are testing all sorts of software and hardware. Even there's um, there that that's a simplistic view of the world. So thinking of everybody is working on pa on packages is is not real there's applications for instance um that that they're never going to set up pull their code together as a package and that's 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 legitimate so if you have an application and your your source code is in your source directory and your test code is in your test directory um it's just your tests are just not going to be able to see your source code right off the bat right so right. I, it, what's more uh, um tricky is depending on how you run it they will or they won't yeah right Right. If you say run it with PyCharm and you open up the whole thing and it can like put together the paths, you're all good. But if you then just go into the directory and type PyTest, well, maybe not. It doesn't work. And it just yeah. confuses a lot of people. And so more and more, I'm recommending people to use this, uh, this little plugin. And really, um, the, the, the big benefit is it gives you, there's, there's, there's a, it does a few things 
but the big biggie is just you can add a python path uh setting within your pytest any file and you stick your any file at the top of your project and then you just give it a relative path to where your source code is like source or src or something else and then pytest from then on will be able to see your source code it's a really simple solution it's just um i i that's way better than what i do i don't think it's a stopgap i think it's awesome so yeah, I, I totally agree. What I do a lot of times is uh, certain parts of my code. I'm like, this is going to get imported. So for me, the real tricky thing is Alembic, the database database migration tool and yeah. the tests and the web app. And usually I can get the tests and the web app to work just fine running them directly. But for some reason, Alembic always seems to get weird, like working directories that don't line up in the same way. So it can't import stuff. So a lot of times I'll put at the top of some file, you know, go to the Python path and add, you know, Get the directory name from Dunder file and go to the parent, add that to the Python path. And now it's going to work from then on, basically. And uh, this seems like a nicer one, although it doesn't help me with Olympic, but still. (laughs) But it it might. You might be able to add the Olympic path right to it. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Very cool. So it's yeah, go ahead, Hannah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, like uh, this is something like pretty much every time I set up a new project, like I always have to screw with the the Python path. (laughs) Yeah. I always like run it initially and then it's like, oh, can't find blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> but yeah, I usually exactly. always run my projects from Docker though. So I just, you know, hard code that stuff, like just directly. Yeah, once, once you get it set up, variables. yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, nice. I dream of days when I can use Docker again, have an M1 <laughs> Mac and it's, it's in super early, early beta stages. Someday. I know. Yeah, it's all good. I don't, I don't mind too much because I don't use it that much, but still cool. Uh, Brian, it says something about .pth, I'm guessing path files. Oh, what Do you know anything about this? I have no idea what those are. Uh, oh, .pth files. So there's, um, yeah, there's, they're, uh, they're a way to, uh, I don't know a lot. Of, I, I don't know the detail, the real big details, but it's it's a way to have a, um, uh, you can have a list of different paths within, within that file. And if you import it, um, or don't import it. If you include it in your path, um, then Python, I think, includes all of the contents into it. Anyway, I'm actually, mm. I'm blowing smoke. I don't know the details. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, but apparently you can have a little more control with ETH files, whatever those are. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I don't all right. know much about that either. Yeah. yeah unfortunately. Either. I mean, I've been using OS.path, so what do I know? All right. <laughs> 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 Speaking of what do I know, I could definitely learn more about pandas. And that's uh, one of your items here, huh, Hannah. Yeah. So um, about it. I thought uh, maybe I just give like a little snippet of kind of like some of the stuff I talk about in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, fantastic. So yeah, uh, here we go. Uh, so if we're looking at pandas in terms of like the dependency hierarchy, um, well, and I guess I should start at the beginning. So what is pandas? If you're not familiar with it, um, it's a data analysis uh, library for Python. Um, so it's used for doing big data operations. Um, and so like if we look at the dependency hierarchy of pandas, it kind of goes like pandas, which is dependent on NumPy, which deep down is dependent on this thing called BLOSS, which is basic linear algebra subprograms. Right. Wasn't uh, there something with BLOSS and Windows and a Windows update in a certain version, I think, recently? I can't remember. I feel like there was some update oh, that like, made that thing for that sure. wasn't working. Yeah, so there usually was a, big, a big challenge around NumPy and versioning and stuff to make it work. In the, yeah, in the usually okay. the the BLOSS library is built into your OS already, um, and it just points at that. But um, if you're using um, something like Anaconda, 
I think by default, like it installs Intel MLK okay, um, cool. and uses that. But yeah, if you're, if you're using like Linux or just like out of the box, whatever's on Windows, which is what it is if you like pip install it, then yeah, there could certainly be issues with like dependencies, mismatches. Um, yeah, so, uh, it, and I've like greatly simplified this, um, but in terms of kind of like the languages and walking down that dependency hierarchy, um, you start out in uh, Python with pandas and then NumPy is partially Python and partially C. And then BLOSS is pretty much always written in assembly. And if you don't know what assembly is, it's basically like a very, 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 like probably the lowest level language you can program in. And it's right. essentially like CPU instructions for your processor. Um, and so um, I've taken this just like basic example here and I'm gonna kind of like roll with it. Um, so if we're doing just like a basic addition in pandas, say like we have column A and we want to add that with column B and like store it back into column C. Like a um, traditional linear algebra vector addition yes. type thing, yeah? <laughs> traditional vector math. Um, so pandas, like if you if you look at these operations, each, uh, each of these like additions on a per row basis is independent, meaning like you could conceivably run like each of those additions for each row, like in parallel. Like there's no reason why you have to go like row by row. Um, right, right. And that's essentially like what kind of like big data analysis libraries are like at their core is they, they like understand this conceptually and try to parallelize things as much as possible. Um, and so that's kind of like the first like fundamental understanding that you have to have like when working with pandas is like you should be doing things in parallel as much as you can, um, which means understanding the API and understanding like which functions in the API will let you do things in parallel. Um, so like if we're just not using pandas at all, um, say like we're just inventing our own sort of like technique for this, like you might think, well, like each of these rows could be broken up like into a thread, right? So like we could say like, thread one is going to run like the first row addition and then like thread two is going to run the second row, et cetera. Um, but you might find that we'll run into issues with this um, in terms of the gil. So like the gil is otherwise known as the global interpreter lock in Python uh, prevents us from really like running a multi-threaded app uh, operation like in parallel. Yeah, yeah um, basically Python can run, the rule is it can run one Python opcode at a time. Yeah. And that's it, right? It doesn't matter if you've got, you know, 16 cores, it's one yes. at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And this like is really terrible for, uh, <laughs> yeah, for, for like tr trying to do things in parallel. Right. So like yeah. that, that kind of use case is out, like pandas and numpy and, and all that stuff is, is not going to be able to use multi-threading. Um, and so, um, and like, I just want to point out like Python, like at its core has this like fundamental problem, which is why they went with the gill. So like Python manages memory for you. Um, and it, it, how it does that is it keeps track of references to know when to um, free up memory. Uh, so like when memory can be like completely destroyed and somebody else can use it essentially um and like that's otherwise something... you gotta do stuff like brian sometimes probably has to do with c and like yeah. and free and all those things right yeah exactly yeah yeah so like c you have to do this with yourself with like malik and free and all that stuff but 
Um, with Python, it does it for you, but that comes at a cost, which means like every single object in Python has this little like counter, which is like a reference counter. Um, and so basically like way back in the day, like when threading first became a thing, like in order to kind of like avoid this threading problem, um, they came up with the gil, uh, which basically says you can only run one thread at a time or like one opcode at a time, as, as you yeah, said. And attempts have been made to remove it. Like Larry Hastings has been working on something called the galectomy, <laughs> the removal of the gil for a while. <laughs> and the main problem is uh, if you take it away, the way it works now is you have to do lock on all memory access, all variable yes. access which actually has a bigger hit than a lot of the benefits you would get, at least in the single threaded case. And I know Guido said, like, if we really don't want to make changes to this, if it's going to mean slower single threaded Python, so probably not for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that is a big problem. So like, I mean, if generally what people use, like instead of threads in Python is they use like multi-process and they spin up multiple mm. Python processes, right? And like that truly kind of like achieves the the parallelism. Um, yep. But anyways, I digress. Uh, so, <laughs> um, so we can't use the gil. But what's interesting to note is when you're uh, running NumPy at its very low level in C, like when you enter and look at the C files, it actually is not subject to the gil anymore because you're in C. Uh, and so you can potentially run, you know, multi-threaded things in yeah. C um, and call it from Python. Uh, so, uh, but beyond that, um, if we look at BLOSS, uh, BLOSS has um, built in like parallelization for like uh, hardware parallelization. Um, and how it does that is through vector registers. Um, so if you're not familiar with like the architecture of CPUs and stuff, um, like at its core, you basically um, only have like only can have a certain small set, maybe like three or four values in your CPU at any one time that you're running like adds and multiplies on. Um, and like how that works is you load those values like into the CPU from memory. And that load can be quite time consuming. It's really just based on like how far away your memory is from your CPU at the end of the day, like physically on your board. Right, right. Um, is it in cache? Is it in Yes, RAM yeah. RAM? And yeah. that's why we have caches. So like, Caches are like memory that's closer to your CPU. Um, consequently, it's also smaller. Um, but that's that's how you can kind of you, you might hear like people say like oh like so and so wrote this really performant program and it like utilizes like the size of the cache or whatever. So like basically like if you can load all of that data like into your cache and run the operations on it without ever like having to go back out to memory, like you can make a really fast program. Yeah, yeah, it could be like a hundred times faster than regular memory. Yeah. Yeah. And cool. so essentially, like, that's what um, BLOSS is trying to do, like underneath and, and NumPy, is they're trying to take this giant set of data and break it into chunks and load those chunks into your cache and operate on those chunks um, okay. and then dump them back out to memory and load the next chunk. Um, yeah, very cool. Uh, thanks for pointing that out. Like, I didn't realize that BLOSS leveraged some of the OS native stuff, nor that it had like special CPU instruction type optimizations. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, so like it has um, like on top of the registers, it also has these things called like vector registers, which actually can hold like multiple values at a time in your CPU. Um, so like we could take this like simple example of um, like the addition and we could actually, well, we can't 
run those like row per row calculations uh, in parallel with threads, we can with vector registers. Okay. Um, yeah. And the yeah. limitation there is that the memory has to be uh, sequential when you load it in. Um, this is definitely at a level lower than I'm used to working at. How about you, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so um, anyways, this is just like kind of the stuff that I talk about in my book. Um, it's not necessarily about like how to use pandas, um, but it's it's about like kind of like what's going on underneath pandas. And then like once you kind of like build that foundation of understanding, like you can understand like better how pandas is working and like how to use it correctly and what yeah. all the various functions are doing. Fantastic. Yeah. So people can check out your book. I've got a link to it in the show notes. So uh, very nice. It's offering me the European, uh, the Euro price, which is fine. I don't mind. So <laughs> yeah. So like, I mean, it's on Amazon too. <laughs> it's on a lot of different platforms, but I figured I'd just point directly to the, the publishers. <laughs> yeah, no, that's perfect. Perfect. Uh, quick comment. Roy Larson says, uh, NumPy and Intel MKL cause issues sometimes, particularly on Windows, if something else in the system uses Intel MKL. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, interesting. I have no experience with that, but I can believe it. Intel has a lot of interesting stuff. They even have a special Python uh, compiled version, I think, for Intel GPUs, potentially. I'm not sure. They have some high-performance version. Uh, yeah, uh, they put yeah. Together. yeah, they do. Yeah. Nice. Also in Portland. Keep it in Portland. There we go. Um, <laughs> Now, before we move on to the next item, let me tell you about our sponsor today. Thank you to Datadog. So they're sponsoring Datadog. And you know, if you're having trouble visualizing latency, CPU, memory bottlenecks, things like that in your app, and you don't know why, you don't know where it's coming from or how to solve it, you can use Datadog to correlate logs and traces at the level of individual requests, allowing you to quickly troubleshoot your Python app. Plus, they have a continuous profiler that allows you to find the most resource-consuming parts of your production code all the time at any scale with minimal overhead. So you just point out your production server, run it, which is not normally something you want to do with diagnostic tools, but you can with their continuous profiler, which is pretty awesome. So be the hero that got that app back on track at your company. Get started with a free trial at pythonbytes.fm slash datadog, or just click the link in your uh, podcast player show notes. Now, um, I'm sure you all have heard that uh, working with Pickle has all sorts of issues, right? Because Pickle is a way to say, take my Python thing, make a binary version of bits that looks like that Python thing so I can go do stuff with it, right? That's generally yeah. got issues, uh, not the least of which actually are around the security stuff. So like to unpickle something, to deserialize it back is actually potentially running arbitrary code. So people could send you a pickle virus. I don't know what that is, like a bad, a rotten pickle or whatever. That wouldn't be good. <laughs> so there's a, uh, an, a library I came across that solves a lot of the pickle problems. It's supposed to be faster than pickle, and it was cleverly named Quickle. Nice. <laughs> Have either of you heard of this thing? No. no. Yeah, it's, it's cool, right? So here's the deal. Um, it's a fast serialization format for a subset of Python types. You can't pickle everything, but you can pickle like way more, say, than JSON. And the reasons they give to use it are it's fast. If you check out the benchmarks, I'll pull those up in a second. It's one of the fastest ways to serialize things in Python. It's safe, which is important. Unlike Pickle, deserializing a user-provided message does not allow arbitrary code execution. Hooray. That That's seems good. like a, a minimum bar. Like, oh, I got stuff off the internet. Let's try to execute that. What's that going to do? Uh, oh, look, it's reading all my files. That's nice. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it also, um, it's uh, flexible because it supports uh, more types. And we'll also learn about a bunch of other libraries while we're at it here, which is kind of cool. A bunch of things I heard of, like MSG Pack, or well, JSON, you may have heard of that. And uh, the other main problem you get with some of these binary formats is you can end up where 
in a situation where you can't read something if you make a change your code. Like, so imagine I've, I've got a user object and I've pickled them and put them into a Redis cache. We upgrade our web app, which adds a new field to the user object. That stuff is still in cache after we restart. We try to read it. Oh, that stuff isn't there anymore. You can't you know, use your cache anymore. Everything's broken, et cetera, et cetera. So it has a concept of schema evolution, having different versions of like history. So there's ways that older messages can be read without errors, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, neat, huh? So, <laughs> here, I'll pull up the benchmarks. There's actually a pretty cool little uh, site here. It shows you some examples on how to use it. I mean, it's incredibly simple. It's like, dump this as a string, read this, you know, deserialize this. It's, it's real simple. So, but there's um, quite uh, interesting analysis, uh, live analysis where you can click around and you can actually look at like load speed versus um, reads, um, like serialized versus deserialized speed, how much memory is used and things like that. And it compares against pickle tuples, protobuf, pickle itself, orjson, msg pack, quickle, and quickle structs. Whew, there's a lot of things. I, I mean, I knew about two of those, I think. That's cool. <laughs> but these are all different ways. And you can see, uh, like in all these pictures, generally, at least the top one where it's time shorter is better, right? So you can see if you go with their like quickle structs, it's quick rule of thumb, maybe four or five times faster than pickle, which I presume is way faster than JSON, for example, you know? And you'll also see the memory size, which actually varies by about 50% across the, the different things. Uh, also speed of load and a whole, a whole bunch of different objects uh, and so on. So yeah, you can come check out these uh, analysis here and let's see all the different libraries that we had. Yeah, I guess we read them all off basically there. But yeah, there's a bunch of different ways which are you know not pickle itself to do this kind of binary serialization, which is pretty interesting, I think. It does protobuf. That's pretty cool. Actually, I yeah. want to try this out. So. <clears throat> it looks neat. Yeah, yeah, it the, looks really neat, right? And one of the things I was just looking at the source code. I love that they use PyTest to test this. Of course, you should use PyTest. <laughs> um, but um, the I can't believe I'm saying this, but this would be the perfect package to test with a Gherkin syntax, don't you think? Because it's got the <gasps> pickle thing. Oh my gosh, you've got to use the Gherkin <laughs> syntax. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you definitely should. And Roy uh, threw out another one, like UQ Foundation. Uh, Dill package uh, deals with many of the same issues, but because it's binary, it has all the same uh, sort of versioning challenges you might run into as well. Dill, so the there. Dill package, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty good, pretty good. All right, so anyway, like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a fan of JSON these days. I've had enough XML with custom namespaces in my life that I really don't want to go down that path, and uh, XSLT and all that. But, uh, you know, I've really shied away from these binary formats for a lot of these reasons here. But, you know, this might make me, Interested. If I was going to say throw something into a cache, and the whole point is put it in the cache, get it back, read it fast, this might be pretty decent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it definitely um, seems to address a lot of the concerns I have with Pickle for sure. Yeah. And I don't, did I talk about the types somewhere in here? We have to, yeah. Here's, so there's quite a list of types. Um, you know, one's really nice. Date time. I can't do that with JSON. Why is, why in the world mm. doesn't JSON yeah. support some sort of time information? Oh, well, but you've got most of the fundamental types that you might run into. All right. So, Quickle. Give it a quick look. <laughs> nice. All right, Brian, what, what you got here? Um, well, I was actually uh, reading a different article, uh, but uh, the it came. We I think we've talked about um, friendly traceback. It's a package that just sort of tries to make your tracebacks nicer. Yeah. But but when I, I didn't realize it had a console built in, so um, I I was pretty blown away by this. So there's a it's you know it's not trivial to get set up. It's not that terrible, but you you have to start your own console, start the REPL, import friendly traceback, and then do friendly traceback start console. But at that point, 
you have just like the normal console, but you have better tracebacks. And then also you have all these different cool functions you can call like, uh, uh, what, uh, what, where, why, um, and explain and more. And basically if something goes wrong while you're playing with Python, uh, you can interrogate it and ask like for more information. And that's just pretty cool. Uh, the, the why is really great. So if you have the, one of the examples I saw before, and I'm, I think I might start using this when teaching people is, uh, we often have like exceptions, like you assigned to none or you assigned to something that can't be assigned or you, you, you didn't match up the bracket and the parenthesis or something like that correctly. Um, and you'll get like just syntax error and it'll point to the syntax mm. error, but you might not know more. So you can just type Y, a W H Y with parentheses. Cause it's a, or yeah, because it's a function and it'll tell you why. What? Why? Where? It's, it's like uh, the great storytelling, right? The five Y's of a bug. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then the you five get W's of a bug. Yep. You can, you can say what, like to, to repeat what the error was, why will tell you why that was an error. And then specifically what you did wrong. And then where it'll tell, show you if you've, if you've been asking all sorts of questions and you lost where the actual traceback was, you can say where, and it'll point to directly to it. And, uh, I think this is going to be cool. I think I'll use this when uh, trying to teach, especially kids, but really just people new to Python tracebacks yeah, can like be very be really helpful for them. Yeah. Like even mm-hmm. I know, like I sometimes have to look up like certain error messages that I'm like not familiar with. So right. yeah, that would be super helpful. Right. You could just You're, do it right in the you, console. Yeah, I totally agree. You, you're going to have to help me find a W that goes with this. But I want the uh, what would be effectively Google open close privacy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because so often you get this huge traceback and you've got these errors. And if you go through and you select it, like for example, the error you see on the screen, un- unbound local error, local variable. Greetings in quotes referenced before assignments. Well, the quotes means oftentimes in search, like it must have the word greeting. And that's the one thing that is not relevant to the, the, the Googling of it, right? So if I'm a beginner and I even try to Google that, I might get a really wrong message. Oh. Right? So if you could say Google this in a way that is most likely going to find the error, but without carrying through like variable details, um, file name details, but just the essence mm-hmm. of the error, that would be yeah. fantastic. Now, That's how do we true. say that with W? <laughs> <laughs> you could just say, whoa. Or, <laughs> or, or maybe WWW. Three Ws. There you go. Or, or, or WTF. I mean, come on. There's some oh, options WTF. Here. WTF is good. <laughs> but wouldn't that be great? And, and so that's also part of this package that you see um, at their main site where you've got these really cool uh, like visualized stuff, right? Where it sort of more tries to tell you the problem of the error with the help text and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, this is cool. Also uses Rich, which is a cool library we talked about previously oh, as well. I love Rich. I, I include Rich in everything now, even just, just to print out simple, better tables. It's great. Yeah, for sure. Hannah, do you see yourself using this or is it, uh, are you more more in uh, notebooks? Oh, no. I, I mean, I usually use like the PDB debugger. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if really this okay. as it is would be um, like a problem it would depend on how much information it has about like obscure errors from dependent libraries which is usually what i end up looking at these days but yeah i mean conceivably like yeah that could be helpful yeah if we get that wtf feature added then uh yeah oh yeah for sure gosh (laughs) (laughs) speaking of errors let's uh cover your last item last item of the show uh yeah so um i uh at work uh 
work in um, the security org and I write uh, like automation tools for them, which means uh, sometimes the repos that we work on get to be like test subjects um, for, for new like requirements and such. Um, and so recently uh, our org was exploring uh, like static code analysis, looking for like security vulnerabilities in the code. Um, and so I ran across Bandit and I integrated Bandit into we, our... We don't have time to uh, go through these old legacy code and fix these problems. Oh, wait, this is what it means? Oh, sorry. <laughs> yes, we can do that right now. Right? That, that's the kind yeah. of report you gave, you got from Bandit? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, we integrated Bandit into our legacy code base. And we actually, it's funny you say that because the bug that I found using Bandit was actually like a, from the legacy code. Um <laughs> <laughs> that does not surprise me. Yeah. Uh, so it was it was a pretty stupid, like, error. Um, like, it was pretty obvious, like, if you were doing code review, but because it was legacy code and it was, like, already there, um, I, I just, like, never noticed. Um, but it was basically, like, issuing, like, a request with, like, no verify. Uh, so <laughs> it was, like, an unverified, like, HTTP request. Um, and Bandit was like, no. Yeah. This uh, um, this this broken SSL certificate keeps breaking it. I just told it to ignore it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I honestly, like, I think that might have been why it was there in the first place. Because I, I know, like, the, oh, like, several years ago, like, had some certificate issues. So, yeah, that might be. And it was, it was like, an internal talking to inter internal. Yeah, so, it was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Eh, so like Maybe yeah. even a self-signed certificate that nothing trusted, but, like, it technically yeah. was there. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, eh, yeah. we'll just, we'll just do that. It's um, fine. But yeah, so um, Bandit is basically like like a linter, but it looks for security issues. Um, so you can just like pip install it um, and then just like run it on your code and it will find a bunch of different potential security issues, like just by like statically analyzing your code. Um, and I've uh, pretty much like come to the opinion that like, why haven't I done this on all of my other projects? Like I should be doing this on every single project. <laughs> um, like, cause you know, like as, as like yeah. a developer, I always run like lint and black and stuff like that. Um, so I figured, you know, I should probably be running bandit too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, very nice. Uh, it's a good recommendation for people as well. And it's got a lot of cool, you can go and actually see the list of the things that it tests for and even has test plugins as well, which is uh, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you can like make your, make your own if you want. Um, and it has like all the common linter sort of like functionality, like ignore these files or like ignore these rules or even you know, like ignore this rule on this particular line, stuff like that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Which is pretty sweet. I, I love that things like bandit are around because, um, uh, Thankfully, uh, developing web stuff is becoming easier and easier, but it's then now the barrier to, to entry is lower. You still have to have all the security concerns that you had before that normal. I mean, usually people were just had more experience, but they would make mistakes anyway. But now I think this is one of the reasons why I love this is because people new to it might be terrified about the security part, but having uh, bandit on their sh looking over their shoulder is great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like don't publish with the debug setting on and blast or <laughs> yeah. Django yeah. or anything like that. Just simple, obvious stuff. And like, honestly, like having worked in the security org for about a year now, like I've come to the understanding that a lot of security issues stem from just like basic, like duh, sort yeah. of misconfigurations. So like something like this is, is perfect. And I, yeah. I really, really like that you added, um, you, you wrote in the show notes, um, some pre, a pre-commit, uh, 
how to, how to hook this up with pre-commit because I think having it in pre-commit or in a CI pipeline is important because um, like you guys were joking about, often security problems come in because somebody's just trying to fix something that broke, yeah. but they don't really realize how many other things it affects. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. Besides yeah, down, I, just we got to make it work quick. Just just turn on the debug thing. We'll just look real quick, and then you forget to turn it off or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just stupid human errors. Nice. All right, I want to go back real quick, Brian, because uh, your uh, mention of friendly traceback got a lot of stuff. So let me just do a quick uh, audience reaction. Robert says it is cool, Brian. John Sheehan says. I was just thinking of something the same. It would be cool. It's a great teaching concept. Anthony says, super useful. Um, John says, I've been doing more demo code in the console rather than ID, and this looks like it would help. <laughs> w, how to fix it. W, wow, how, W, wow. I love it, Robert. Very good. <laughs> Zach says, uh, what is this magic? This looks amazing. And so on. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, I'm glad you all uh, like that. Uh, so that's it for our main items, you know. Um, Brian, you got any extras you want to throw out there? You were um, uh, doing something with climate change, or what? What are you doing this week? Um, yeah, I'm sharing a room with some people. Just a sec. Uh, the uh, I did do two meetups uh, with uh, with uh, Noah, and uh, then with the Aberdeen Python meetup. Wait, wait, group. I got I got to interrupt you really quick. Did all that talk that Hannah did about bandit and viruses get you? I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 it's all right. I'm sorry. Um, sorry about that. Carry on. What was the I missed your I question. Did all this talk with Hannah that Hannah had about viruses and, and hacking and stuff with Bandit? Did it make you nervous and you had to put on your, your mask? No, I just I'm <laughs> in a group meeting in a group room and somebody came in. But yeah. it's okay. I'm, I'm just teasing. Carry on. Um, did he, that's funny. I also wanted to look like a Bandit. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I was thrilled that. Uh, Noah uh, asked me to to speak to them. That was neat. And then the Python Aberdeen people. Um, and also like, but they mentioned that Ian from the Python Aberdeen group said that he had an arrangement with you that when you, Michael, that when the, the pandemic is over, you're going to go over and they're going to, you're going to do like a whiskey tour or something like that. So I'm, I don't know the details, but it sounds good to me already. Let's anyway, if that happens, I want to go along. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It's a Python bites outing. Let's do it. And then we have a, uh, uh, there are, PDX West meetup tomorrow. You're going to speak. That's kind of exciting. So. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And people, it's virtual, so people can attend, however. Um, I'm also, I've got feedback from both uh, you and um, and Matt Harrison gave me some feedback. So I'm updating my training page on testing code. So um, because I really like working with teams. So I'd, and anybody else wants to give me feedback on my training page, maybe I could, I'd love to hear it. So yeah, or maybe good. they even want to have some. I test training for their team. Yeah. I mean, testing is something that uh, I think teaching a team at a time is a great thing because people can uh, can really, um, I don't know, they, we can talk about their their particular problems, not general problems. It's good. So Yeah, for sure. Well, you also need more of a team buy-in on testing, right? Because like if one person writes code and won't write the test and another person is like really concerned about making the test fast, it's super frustrating Yeah, and the person yeah. who doesn't want to run the test keeps breaking the build but like but, you know anyway it's a team sort of sport in that regard yep yeah all right awesome so i got a couple of quick things pep 634 structural pattern matching in python has been accepted for python 310 that's like imagine a switch case that has about a hundred different options that's what it is yeah with like like reg x not quite but sort of like style like you can have like these patterns and stuff that happen in the cases i don't know how to feel about this like if if uh 
let me put it in perspective. Like if the walrus operator was controversial, like this is like <laughs> this is like a way bigger change to the language. So I don't know. It, it's both awesome uh, and terrifying. Yes, exactly. Yeah, my I first was gonna is, say like, I'm oh, kind of surprised. Yeah, yeah. So am I, Hannah. That like this got accepted. It seemed to be sort of counter to the simplicity of Python. Like I, I'm not at all <laughs> against having a simple switch statement that does certain things, but this seems like a lot. Uh, I may come to love it. One thing that uh, maybe would help me come to a better understanding and acceptance was if the pep page had at least one example of it in use. Like the whole page that talks about all the details says, I don't believe there's a single code sample ever. Well, there's a tutorial is, page as well. So Oh, is there? There's the tutorial page. Okay. Well, maybe that's okay. where I should be going to check it out. Yeah. But it still yeah. sort of feels like a five barrel foot gun. Yeah, oh. it does. Well, but the page that I'm looking, like the pip thing that I'm listening to, the official pep, I don't think it has... Uh, does it have the tutorial? Yeah, no, you're right. It does. It does. Um, somewhere down. Uh, yeah, Pep six thirty six. Yeah, it's a different Pep. That is the tutorial for the Pep. Interesting. I didn't realize that. It's kind of meta, honestly. <laughs> anyway, I, to me, I'm a little surprised it's accepted. Fine. Um, I, I know people worked really hard on it, and congratulations. A lot of people really want it. It comes from Haskell, right? So Haskell had this like pattern matching, like alternate struct thing. I don't know. I just feel like Haskell and Python are far away from each other. So that's that's my first impression. I will probably come to love it at some point. Uh. PyCon registration is open. So if you want to go to PyCon, you want to attend and be more part of it than just like watching the live stream on YouTube, be part of that. I think I'm going to try to make a conscious effort to attend the virtual conference, not just catch some videos. So uh, you can do that. Yeah. PyCon is awesome. Like just I, my first conference was PyCon and then I went to other conferences and I was like, <laughs> what are wrong with these conferences? Like, yes, why do they I suck so, so much? <laughs> I know. I feel the same way. I know. <laughs> It's uh, it's really, really special. I'm sure the virtual one will be good. I can't wait for the in-person stuff to come back because it really is for a sure. experience. Yeah, it's a whole other experience in person. I, I consider Absolutely. it basically my um, geek holiday where I get get away and like just get to hang out with my geek friends. I happen to learn stuff on there. Totally. <laughs> and then Python WebConf is coming up and that's uh, registration is open for that as well. Um, and I suppose probably PyCascades, which Brian and I are on a panel at there as well. Oh, nice. Now, I, put, I put a link into an hour of code for Minecraft, which has to do with programming Minecraft with Python. If people are looking to teach kids stuff, uh, that looks pretty neat. So um, my daughter's super into Minecraft. I don't do anything with it. But if, if you are and you want to make it part of your curriculum, uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Hannah, anything you want to throw out there before uh, we break out the joke? Nope. I'm awesome. good. <laughs> awesome. Do it. Do All right. it. <laughs> All right. So this one, we have something a little more interactive for everyone. We've got a, um, a song about PEP8, about writing clean code. This is written and, and uh, produced, sung by Leon Sandoy, uh, goes by Lemon. And him and his team over at Python Discord, he runs Python Discord, and apparently it was a, a team effort creating this. And uh, the reason I'm covering is a bunch of people sent it over. So Michael Rogers Valet uh, sent it over, so you should cover this. Dan Bader said, check this out. Alan McElroy said, hey, check out this thing. So, all right. I actually uh, spoke to Lemon and said, hey, do you mind if we play this? He said, no, that'd be awesome. Give us a shout out, of course. So we're going to actually play the song as part of this. In the live stream, you get the video. On the uh, audio, you get, well, audio. So um, I'll kick this off and we'll come back and I, I'd love to hear uh, Brian and Hannah's thoughts. Here we go. You don't need just four spaces, just four spaces. Wildcard imports should be avoided in most cases, in most cases. 
Try to make sure there's no trailing white space It's confusing, it's confusing Trailing commas go behind list items Get blamed titans, get blamed titans And comments are important as long as they're maintained When comments are misleading it will drive people insane Just try to be empathic, just try to be a friend It's really not that hard, just adhere to Constants should be named all capital letters And live forever, live forever And camel cases not for Python Never, ever, never, ever And never use a bare exception Be specific be specific No one likes the horizontal scroll bar Keep it succinct Keep it succinct And comments are important As long as they're maintained When comments are misleading It will drive people insane Just try to be empathic just try to be a friend It's really not that hard Just adhere to That was amazing. I, I, I like can sympathize with like so many of so much of what he's saying. Like I, I'm just like having flashbacks to like a discussion I had with my teammate about like comments and <laughs> 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 being like, no, this comment doesn't actually describe what the code is doing. <laughs> it's worse than having oh no gosh. comment. It really is. It Come really on. is. Yeah. Or, or it. like the, if it describes like literally what the code is doing and not exactly. like, you know, Kind of like high why level or background of. or yeah. anything other than the why. Um, the why is important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So, two things, Lemon and Team, well done on the song. And man, you got a great voice. That's actually, it was beautiful and funny. Yeah. yeah it was amazing. All right. Well, Brian, we probably should wrap it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, Hannah, thanks so much for being here. It's good yeah. to have you on the show. And Brian, thanks as always. Everyone, thanks, thanks for listening. For thanks. Bye. Yep. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.